from the time um, my family moved to Titusville, Florida in 1991 until we moved here 16 years later, we had a family tradition. On Christmas Eve, we would pack up our car, then our minivan, and then our SUV. And then I would go and I would lead our Christmas Eve service at our church, whether it was in Titusville or in Orlando. And after I finished with that Christmas Eve service, we would get in our car, our minivan, or our SUV, and we would travel to Hartsville, South Carolina, our hometown. Now, and along the way, we would sing crazy songs. We would play silly games. We would drink a lot of coffee. Every year, we would always stop in Brunswick, Georgia. And when we would leave Titusville or Orlando, typically it would be very warm. But by the time we got to Brunswick and we opened up the door to get some gas and to get some more coffee, it started turning cold. Now, even though Titusville was our home when we lived there and Orlando was our home when we lived there, we were traveling back to our hometown because there was something special about our hometown. Now, this morning... What I want to do is talk to you about another hometown, the hometown of of both Mary and Joseph. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Micah chapter 5 as we continue our series, Ancient Stories of Christmas. And what we're doing is we're looking at Old Testament passages that tell us the Christmas story. Now, last week, we went all the way back to creation itself, to the Garden of Eden, to that paradise, and we looked at what happened that caused us to need Christmas in the first place. But this morning, what I want us to do is travel back around 2,700 years, 750 years, before Jesus was even born. And I want us to look at a birth that tells us both who the Messiah would be and where he would be born. Now Micah, let me give you a little information about who he was. He was a simple country prophet whose name means who is like God. And he was a courageous prophet because as you read through this book, you discover that he exposes The sins of the people. He confronts the people because of their sin. And then he calls the people to repent and turn back to God. Because God is going to judge their sin. But in this book, he also tells us of a time when Israel will indeed turn back to God. And there's one verse in this book where he tells us about the Messiah... And this is one of those ancient stories of Christmas. I want you to listen to what it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, of Phratha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, 750 years before Jesus was even born, 
We are told that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But have you ever wondered, have you ever pondered, have you ever considered why Bethlehem? Is there a reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? What is so special about Bethlehem? And as we seek to answer that question and as we try to unpack this one verse, I want you to discover that there are four truths in this small verse that I believe will encourage you, challenge you, and also teach you something about who Jesus is. So four truths. Here's the first truth that I think is so important, and it's this. God uses the insignificant to accomplish the miraculous. God uses the insignificant to accomplish the miraculous. And out of all the places the Messiah could be born, why was he born in Bethlehem? A tiny town, a little town, a small town, about, about five to six miles outside of Jerusalem on the way to Egypt. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you were God, where would you have chosen for the Messiah to be born? Perhaps Rome, because Rome was the political capital of the day. And, and this one who was to be born, your son, was not only going to be the ruler of Israel, but the ruler of the world. Or perhaps Athens, the philosophical capital of the day, because that's where all of the great minds were, and they would ponder and debate philosophy and ideas and thought. Or maybe Alexandria in Egypt, the intellectual capital of the day where, where the great minds would go and learn. Or at the very least, Jerusalem, which was the capital of the Jews. And yet here is the Messiah, the, the one who would be born ruler of Israel, and we know the ruler of the world, and he is born in Bethlehem. Now why? Well, I believe the reason or at least one of the reasons, is because God wants us to know that he uses the insignificant to accomplish the miraculous. Now, the truth of the matter is, there are some of you here this morning who have this idea in your mind that God could never use you in a powerful way. God could never use you to accomplish great things for his glory. And yet, as we look at God's word, we discover that God often chooses the unknown, the unaccomplished, to accomplish great things. You see, the people that God uses weren't great when God chose them. They became great because God chose them. Uh, think for a moment. Think back to those 12 disciples Jesus chose. They were fishermen, tax collectors, insurrectionists. They were ordinary, common people that Jesus selected to, to gather around himself, that Jesus selected to change the world. When these men were before the Sanhedrin being questioned, the Sanhedrin described them as unlearned, common men. And yet, that's the kind of people that God uses. Or what about Moses? You would say, but Moses was, was raised in the, the house of Pharaoh. He was taught 
with Egyptian knowledge, and that's true. And yet, we, we know that Moses was a murderer. We know when God called Moses, Moses evidently had some kind of speech problem, some kind of speech impediment, and he made these excuses. God, you can't use me. I can't even speak without stuttering. And yet, God used him to deliver his people out of slavery and lead them to the promised land. Many of the prophets of the Old Testament were, were farmers and herdsmen, simple men that God called, that God equipped to do great things for his glory. Uh, the Apostle Paul said it this way. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and following. He said, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, listen to what Paul said, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things of this world, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast to him. You see, God takes the nobodies, God takes the no ones, God takes the people who have nothing, and he uses them to accomplish great things. So don't ever think that, that your inabilities, your disabilities will keep you from being used by God. Think of Fanny Crosby, who was born blind, God used her to, to write many of those incredible songs of our faith. Or think about Johnny Erickson Tata, who was in an accident as a teenager, paralyzed from literally the neck down, and yet God has used her to impact literally hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of people. Now, the fact of the matter is, because of social media and the Internet and a host of other tools, it seems like today we have this spiritual generation of spiritual superstars who at times look like rock stars, but understand that's never the way it was in God's Word. God chose the lowly. God chose the foolish. God chose the insignificant. And he touched them with his power. And as he did, God used them to accomplish great things. Why Bethlehem, oh little town of Bethlehem, oh lowly town of Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because God uses insignificant people, insignificant things to accomplish the miraculous. Here's the second truth that I think we need to know. And that is God is in control, working out every detail to accomplish his plan. Let me say that again. God is in control working out every single detail to accomplish his plan. Remember, this passage was written almost 750 years before Jesus was born. And Micah was saying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That would be like, in our day, someone writing in 1255 A.D., 750 years ago, that out of Honolulu, Hawaii, 
would come the 44th president of the United States. If we found a document that said out of Honolulu, Hawaii, would come the 44th president of the United States, we would go, whoa. Now, I know some of you are saying he wasn't born in Hawaii. Get over it. Get over it. If, some, if somebody found something that was written, that that was written on, you would be saying, this is amazing, this is incredible, this is miraculous. Either there's somebody that knows how to tell the future, or there is some power, some being that is orchestrating the details of life to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Now, I want you to fast forward with me 750 years. And you discover with me that the people that, that God chose to accomplish his task to have the baby be born in Bethlehem didn't even live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. But God orchestrated the events and put the people in place to accomplish his plan perfectly. Now, let me say that again. God orchestrated the events. He put the people in place to accomplish his plan. If you want to, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. One of the versions of the Christmas story. And in verse 1, it begins like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee and Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, what is interesting to me is this. Most historians say that this is the first time that a census of this kind was ever taken. Think about that. The first time in history that a census of this magnitude was taken, and it happened at this time. And so Mary and Joseph packed up their donkey, their minivan of their day, and they made their way to Bethlehem, a distance of about 100 miles. They traveled over dusty trails. They traveled over rough terrain. And, and don't forget, Mary was nine months pregnant. And they made it to Bethlehem at just the right time for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Now, don't tell me God's not in control. Don't tell me God's not sovereign. Don't tell me God is not on his throne. God is in control of everything. There are some of you here this morning who are concerned to the point of worry over what is happening in our world. What's going on with this electioning? What's happening with the economy? But I believe with all my heart, God is on his throne. And no amount of terrorist attacks, no presidential candidate can thwart God's plan. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that God wants us to be filled with his spirit. 
I believe that God wants us to walk in obedience, and that means that that as we vote, we vote in ways that honor God's word. We vote in ways that honor God's revealed character. That means that when we react to situations around the world, we react in ways that honor God and shows that we love and we trust him because in the end, nothing can thwart God's plan. It doesn't mean that we're not involved. It doesn't mean that we don't pray. It doesn't mean that we don't make godly, wise decisions as we make choices in life. But in the end, God is going to accomplish his plan. God is the one who establishes governments. God is the one who puts people in place to accomplish his plan. And though you and I may not fully understand it, all things are working toward God's ultimate end. Now let me just clarify. I'm talking about world circumstances. I'm not talking about individual salvation. And I believe that there is a difference biblically as we look through Scripture. There is a lot of confusion and even disagreement among Christians when it, when it comes to how God works in individuals' lives to save them. There are some that say that, that people are unconditionally elected to be saved. There are others who say, no, we choose whether we're going to be saved or not. There are some that say Jesus' death was for the elect. There are others that say Jesus' death was for the entire world. Now, though there's disagreement on these issues, the Bible is crystal clear on some things. And I want to share a few of these things with you. First, the Bible is crystal clear. It's written in his word, 2 Peter chapter 3, that God is not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. That's in God's word. It's in black and white. God wants everyone to repent. Second, it's written in God's Word, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's written in the Word. God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Finally, it's written in the Word, whosoever will may call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Here's what you need to understand if you're here today and you don't know Jesus. God will never turn away anyone who wants to be saved. And God's word is clear on this. He wants to save you. But in the end, you have to decide whether you're going to accept or reject God's grace. Paul says it this way. Paul said they perish Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. You see, your eternal destiny is not out of your hands. God loves you. Jesus died to save you. But you must choose to receive him as your Savior and Lord. And so when it comes to salvation, though God knows who will and who will not choose him, God's desire is for everyone to be saved. And he is going to orchestrate events in your life so that you will have that choice, that opportunity. But when it comes to world events, God is working everything out 
to accomplish his master plan. And so hear me. Don't get overly concerned about ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Don't get overly worried about the global economy or the national economy. Don't get overly worked up about these presidential primaries and the election. Because God is on his throne. What we need to do is we need to be obedient to him and believe that if we're walking in obedience, he is going to work everything out for our good because he promised that. And hear me, one of the greatest tools we have as believers to share our faith is our calm assurance that God is in control working all things out regardless of what the world around us looks like. Amen? And so we need to walk in faith, trusting God, believing that God's never taken his hands off of the steering wheel. God is in control. God uses the insignificant. Here's the third thing. And this is a, a doctrinal truth that this verse teaches. Bethlehem is the birthplace of Jesus. But it is not the beginning point for Jesus. Now, I want you to look at verse 2 again. Notice what it says. It says, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, some translations, including the NIV, of which I just read, can be very confusing here. Because it talks about his origins, his, 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 his beginning point. And so, in our mind, we can read that and we can say that Jesus had a beginning point. He had an origin. But you need to understand that word origin is not in the Hebrew. The word that is translated in some of your translations, origin, literally means going forth. That's what the word means. And so this verse literally translated means his going forth is from eternity. In other words, he is walking into a Bethlehem out of where? Eternity. Eternity is his home. You see, you need to understand that Jesus has always been and he always will be. He may have been born as a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but he has always been God. The one who was born in Bethlehem is the one who created the world out of nothing. Now, let's just be honest. That idea boggles our mind. The eternal nature of Jesus as God is difficult for us to comprehend when we say there is one God, and yet that God has revealed himself throughout eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, that's beyond my comprehension. Maybe you can understand it completely, and one day you can share it to us who have a difficult time understanding it. And yet, that's what the Bible teaches. And that's why cults and, and other religious groups say Christianity worships three gods. Because they don't understand this concept that there's one God who exists as three persons throughout all eternity. The Mormons say this. The Mormons say he was the firstborn of our heavenly parents. He is our elder brother. And so on our planet, Jesus is the firstborn of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. That's what the Mormons 
believe. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, that Jesus is the first created being. He was Michael the archangel who submitted to God's authority and was born humanly as Jesus. Islam believes that, that Jesus is a prophet, but Jesus is not God and Jesus did not die. But the Bible teaches that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and yet he was, he is, and he always will be God. Let me give you a couple of verses that will help you with this. And the Bible is filled with them. But John chapter 1, verse 1, verse, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then it goes on down in verse 14. And it says, and the Word that was with God and was God. This Word became flesh And made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. Who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. At the beginning of everything was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word took on flesh. And made his dwelling among us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and he is supreme over all creation. Now listen. This is not one of those beliefs that we can choose to believe or disbelieve. This is a core belief of our faith. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians... We must believe in the eternal existence of Jesus. But have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about this this reality that God exists eternally as one God fellowshipping as three people? God has lived in relationship, in intimacy, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout eternity. You see what that teaches, and I want you to get this. This is so important. Our God is a relational God. Our God lives in relationship. Have you ever wondered why we long for relationships? And and, and some of us, perhaps many of us, have, have sought out those relationships in the wrong ways. Have you ever wondered why we long for intimacy? It's because we are created in the image of God. And God is a relational God. And because we are created in the image of God, we long for those relationships. That's why it's so important, it's so vital as a Christ follower that that you get involved in life groups and small groups where you can develop those close, intimate relationships with other people, where you can pray together, where you can cry together, where you can share together, where you can hold one another accountable. We all need that. Jesus may have been born in Bethlehem, but he didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. Now, here's the final truth. God will provide our every need. Now, it's interesting that the one who calls himself in the New Testament the bread of life was born in Bethlehem because Bethlehem means house of bread. 
In John chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, Jesus said that right after he had fed the 5,000 with a few pieces of bread and, and, and a few pieces of fish. And, and the Bible says that the crowds began to follow him because, I mean, goodness gracious, if, if he can take a, a few pieces of bread and a few fish and he can feed 5,000 of us, think what he can do for us. I mean, he can meet our each and every need. And so the crowd began to follow him. And, and listen, the Bible makes it crystal clear that, that God wants to meet our every need. In Philippians Chapter 4, verse 19, it says, My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question we have to ask, and look at me, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does that really mean? When the Bible says God will meet our every need, what does that really mean? I was talking to a former church member this past week who, who leads mission trips to Central America several times a year. And he just came back from one of those mission trips. And he said, while we were there, we went to a house that was located in the city dump. A house, if you can call it that. Located in the city dump to pray with this woman. Here was this woman living in the midst of filth and garbage, dirt and decay. And they went to pray with her. And, and as they sat down with her in her house, they said, how can we pray for you? How, how, what do you have that you want us to lift up and ask God for for you? And she says, oh, you don't need to ask God for anything for me. I've got everything I need. We just need to praise God and thank God for who he is and what he's done in Jesus. Well, the people that spoke English, when they heard the translation, thought, surely the translation was wrong. So they said, ask her again, what can we pray for her for? The translator asked again, and she said, oh, you don't need to ask God for anything from me. I've got everything I need. Let's just thank God for Jesus. Now, when we hear that in America, that boggles our mind. Here's this woman living in what can be called a house in a garbage dunk amid filth and decay. And she says, I have everything I need. And, and here we are at Christmas time, the most materialistic time of the year in our nation. We call it the time when we give, but we give because we want to get. Amen? It's materialistic time when... When we buy ourselves and we buy other people things that we would never buy them at any other time of the year. And, and yet here's this woman that says, I've got Jesus. I've got everything I need. How, how do you look at Jesus? One woman wrote this. As a new Christian, I assumed Jesus' main job was to take care of me. He led me to a job, roommates to share apartment costs, and a car that ran. But after a while, my taste got fussier. I wanted a home with more privacy, a more interesting, better paying, but less stressful job, and a shinier new car. My list continued to grow. I wanted Jesus to perk me up when I was down, remove all my difficulties, and make living a whole lot easier. 
when those things didn't come, I felt as if Jesus had walked away from me. Max Lucado said it this way. He said, for some, Jesus is a good luck charm. The rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket size, handy, easily packaged. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame him, dangle him from your rearview mirror, glue him to your dashboard. His specialty, getting you out of a jam. Need a parking lot? Rub the redeemer. Need help on a quiz? Pull out the rabbit's foot. No need to have a relationship with him. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. And that's how many of us look at Jesus today. We've, we've totally missed this understanding of Jesus meeting our needs. So what does it mean? Well, let me give you three things that, that it says in John 6 that, that the bread of life will provide for us. First of all, he'll provide salvation. Verse 47 in John 6 says, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I'll provide you with salvation. I'll forgive your sins. I will give you a home for all eternity. And what you need to understand is, regardless of how difficult life may be on planet Earth, the time that we're here pales in comparison to eternity. And God's promised us eternal life if we will believe in Jesus. He promises salvation. He promises satisfaction. In verse 35, Jesus said this. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you're not going to be hungry again. If you come to me, you're not going to be thirsty again. But he's not talking about physical food. He's not talking about physical water. He's talking about meeting the innermost desires of your life, providing the satisfaction that everyone is looking for. And listen, everyone is looking for that. The alcoholic, the drug addict, the adulterer, the homosexual, the corporate climber, every person on planet earth is, is looking for something to fill this emptiness in their life. And Jesus said, you come to me and your search is over. You're never going to be looking anymore. Bruce Springsteen said, everybody's got a hungry heart. And that's what it says in John 6, 35. Everybody has this hungry heart. But if you come to Jesus, he's the bread of life. If you come to Jesus, he's the living water. And you'll never hunger. You'll never thirst again. There's a song that says, who can satisfy my soul like you? Who on earth can comfort me and love me like you do? Who could ever be more faithful, more true? The answer is nobody. There's an older song that goes like this. I'm satisfied with Jesus. He has done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. Here's what the psalmist said. He said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now many people have misinterpreted that verse. 
And, and they have thought that what that means is if I delight in the Lord, then he's going to give me all these other things that I want in life. And that's not what this verse says. This verse says, when you delight in the Lord, when that's what you long for, when that's what you desire, you desire him, he's going to give himself to you. And you're going to discover that everything you've been looking for is found in Jesus. Jesus gives us salvation, eternal life. Jesus gives us satisfaction because he gives us himself and he gives us security. In chapter 6, verse 37 and following, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none that has come to me, but raise them up at the last day. For the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. What does Jesus say? He's saying, not only will I save you, not only will I satisfy you, I will take you securely home. Your making it to heaven is not based upon you. Your making it to heaven is based upon Jesus. It's not how strongly you can hold on to Jesus. It's how strongly he can hold on to you. And listen, he's not going to let you go. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Insignificant and yet out of you comes the Messiah. Little town of Bethlehem. Those words penned 750 years before Jesus was to be born. And yet God orchestrated the events to make everything happen just the way he wanted it to happen. And you think he's not in control? O little town of Bethlehem, out of you comes forth one who walks in from eternity. Jesus has always been, he always will be. He is the eternal God. O little town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, comes the bread of life that will meet your every need. And what is your need? Really, you need salvation. He'll give it to you. You need satisfaction. If you find Jesus, you're going to find it. He'll give you security. He will take you home safely. So what about it? Where are you? Now I want to close with this word. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus was born in Bethlehem as a baby, to accomplish one purpose. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus died. Jesus was born so that you could be saved. And if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, and you've never trusted Him, and this is where you need to look at me, you've never trusted Him to the point that he's changed your life. Because there may be some of you who say, well, I've trusted Jesus, but you've just moved on with your life. Nothing's changed. And yet the Bible makes it clear that when we encounter the living Lord, everything changes. And so if you're here and 
and you've never trusted Jesus to the point that his spirit has come into your life and changed you and made you brand new then I want to give you the opportunity to give your heart and life to him today to trust the one born in Bethlehem to save you from your sins I want you to bow your head and close your eyes because you need to understand that regardless of what's going on in your life this is the most important decision for you so if you're here you haven't given your life to Jesus then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer right now dear Jesus I come to you this morning asking you to forgive me for all my sins I believe you came to this earth you died on the cross to save me and because of your love I'm giving my life to you I'm yours Thank you for loving me, Jesus. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. Thank you for, for your willingness to walk through life with me. And I pray this in the name of my Savior and my Lord, Jesus Christ.